Welcome to Deep Roots, a project of Cortez Community Radio. Deep Roots is an examination of traditional knowledge and culture and environment. Two hats, woven of cedar from the same towering west coast trees. That cedar woven under and over, in the same stitches. Two hats made over a century apart. The older hat lives in the local museum. Tara Workington found it there on a rainy afternoon. The other was made for Tara's mother, and although it's made of the same material and techniques as the old hat, it's a peculiar shape. What's the relationship between these two hats? How has this slow craft survived time? What's the importance of cedar weaving today? Only the cedar weavers can answer these questions, so Tara set out to learn their secrets. Cedar weaving begins in the forest. I'm here, under the wild sweeping branches, in the forest where I've grown up. A good chunk of my childhood was spent in Cortez Island's forest. Building fairy houses, making forts, climbing trees, getting skinned knees. The forest teaches me and shelters me. I am fed by its loamy, mossy smell. I never felt alone in the forest. Sure, the ecosystem's teeming with life. But there's another layer, an ancient layer of human presence. For thousands of years, Clahoos people lived in symbiosis with Cortez Island forests. I wanted to learn more about the history of forest use on the coast. Right now, I'm in university, so my impulse was to find answers through academic research. Yeah, my name is Jacob, Jacob Um I was studying culturally modified trees in southern New Chalmers areas um, on the west coast of Vancouver Island. It was for my master's thesis. I asked Jacob what a culturally modified tree is. A culturally modified tree is basically any tree that's been uh, modified by an indigenous people as part of uh, traditional use of the forest. So it can be any species of tree, but on the west coast it's usually cedar. The bark was used for all sorts of things, from house siding to shingles to... Um, clothing, rope, uh, baskets. Jacob told me that while the bark was harvested, so is the wood and the roots and the greenery, and used for housing, canoes, hunting, medicine. The cedar was used for basically everything. I don't think we have a material today that's so intrinsic to society. Can you imagine if plastic formed our houses, transport, tools and medicine? And cedar is a renewable resource. Today, on the West Coast, cedar has been overtaken by commercial imported materials. So, if indigenous people are spending far less time working with the cedar, are they still connected to the forest? I think the connections still exist. Um, People living in coastal areas are still connected to the forest just because their ancestors and their cultures have been so influenced by forest usage over millennia. So even though people's day-to-day practices have changed somewhat, you know, their culture is still kind of embedded in forest usage. Forest usage has changed on the coast in the last 100 years. 
Once, all the parts of the tree were used. Now, harvested trees are sent to mills where the bark is wasted. Once, the forest resources went straight to the people who lived in that same forest. Now, raw logs are often shipped far overseas. Cedars on the coast are becoming rarer and rarer, threatened by mass logging and climate change. But it's too easy to paint a horror story in line with Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. In fact, Jacob told me that traditional forestry practice are very much alive among many coastal First Nations. A lot of people don't use that much in the way of cedar products anymore, but some do, and some communities do more than others. And for the people that are using, that are still making baskets, that are still making rope and different kind of traditional um, materials, they are still going into the woods, and a lot of these communities still treat the trees in the same, same way that their ancestors did. You know, they still request bark from the tree, and they still um, consider the tree a living being, kind of like a, a sort of person. There seems to be this push-pull between tradition and modern logging. But Jacob told me a story of how the two sides came together. For his research on culturally modified trees, he went looking for very early evidence of forestry practices. And deep in Barclay Sound he found a cedar with a scar, 1108 years old. It was bark stripped in, I think, um, 903 AD. This was a groundbreaking discovery because old scars aren't usually visible. Very hard to tell in a standing tree, but a, a very old standing tree, what the cultural scar looks like. But Jacob found this tree as a stump after loggers had been through. The logging let him see the trunk in cross-section so he could see the tree's growth rings curling inward towards its core. In this case, learning about ancient traditions was made possible by modern forestry. So in a way, it's, it's fantastic because you can see the forest in cross-sections. You can see all the bark-peeling events that have happened in the forest. But at the same time, it's all been destroyed, so it's kind of maybe a little bittersweet that you can see all this history, but at the same time it's all been destroyed. So it's a very useful tool because haircut logging is such a reality on the coast. You can use all this data to show, you know, how much how much cultural history is in these standing forests. Later on, we'll hear from a weaver who also works with the forestry companies to harvest cedar bark. After I spoke to Jacob, I began to realize that cedar has a very complicated story. Cedar is not just about material, it's about the process of making something with your hands. When I moved away from Cortez Island to go to university, the pace of life increased and I spent more and more time inside, out of touch with the seasons and the trees. Where each September before, I checked the apples in the garden, now I checked my phone, well, all the time. I crave learning and working with my hands. How to slow down time again. 
I began taking slow, solitary runs through the forest. I'm a horrible runner. But I noticed things. And there, one day, caught in a beam of sun, was a cedar with a long, triangular scar. Some scars in the bark were nearly grown over. Some were shiny and new. It was clear that this is a practice that is sustainable. Why has it survived time? Why is cedar still being woven today? I started to feel a little secret wish. A wish to learn to weave. I'd heard about weaving circles where women gathered to learn from an elder. But do I have a right to weave with cedar? Can I, as a non-First Nations person, assume that identity? Or is that some horrible form of colonization? I know a cedar weaver who is not, in fact, First Nations. She's watched me grow up on Cortez. Her name is Amy Robertson, and she works with local materials, including cedar, to make hats, baskets, laptop cases, water bottles. Remember my mum's hat from the beginning of this story? Amy wove it. The hat that you're referring to is actually a visor of, uh, of my own design, so that was really exciting to see something like that come to fruition and to actually be worn. I visited Amy at the Old Schoolhouse Art Gallery on Cortez Island. She's put together an exhibition with three other women. As she spoke to me, her hands moved, winding bundles of pale yellow cedar, preparing them for weaving. The bark was harvested this spring in Haida Gwaii by Amy and her Haida teacher, Marlene Little. Marlene took the time to talk to me over the phone while she was at a celebration. Maybe you can hear the conversations and laughing kids in the background. My name is Marlene Little. I am... Haida from Old Masset. My Haida name is Kun Kweungus. I'm of the Yakwanis Raven clan and uh, I'm a cedar bark weaver. Marlene and Amy harvest bark together every year in Haida Gwaii. This is Amy. We go up into mainly areas that are destined for clear cutting and we just work ahead of the loggers. Marlene continued the story. They usually will put a logging road into the area and then call me and tell me the road is ready so that I can bring um, elders into the area and set them up in a central location and then all of us young people go out and harvest and uh, bring the bark back for the elders to work on and we all share the proceeds of the, the harvesting for that day. And here's Amy again. Because they were doing so much cutting in Masset this year, Marlene was going out every single day with whoever she could find to go with her, thinking that at some point they may not have access to it. And because the sap is in it and she knows how to store it, it will last indefinitely. But the other thing that we were doing when we were up there, knowing that this was a rare ingredient, was distributing it to the elders who... It's a, it's a you know it's a pleasure for them to work with as well and and most weavers have access to the red cedar but the yellow cedar has been um, 
an honor actually to share with other people. Because although the traditional practice of stripping bark is sustainable, the trees survive, see the numbers on the northwest coast are dwindling, especially the prized yellow cedar. There's disease that is impacting the uh, cedar, yellow cedar, and there's also the climate change. Amy and Marlene's bark harvesting is a radical counter-movement to tree consumerism. Marlene has also worked with the government to protect yellow cedars. She wrote a letter, and as a result... There is uh, no yellow cedar being harvested hmm. that I'm aware of. Weaving also preserves cedar for future generations. A basket woven by Marlene today is a record of Haida weaving stitches, and also the material itself. But just as the cedar is in danger of dying out, so are the weavers. Well, it, it was important for me to learn to weave because um, there are actually not that many cedar bark weavers at this time um, because of difficulty of uh, transportation to get out to the areas where they have where there is um, trees that are the right size for harvesting for um, the bark. So because of my love of the forest and my love of harvesting and the skill level that I developed doing that for my my elders, um, they impressed it upon me that it, it was my duty to learn to weave so that I could pass that on to my children and my grandchildren. Now Marlene's students have grown beyond her family members. Amy's just one of them. So Marlene has welcomed me into her home for a couple weeks every year for the last four years. And I never leave there without having learned a few more things, whether it's a harvesting technique, how to finish another border, um, details of preparation, design. She's amazing. And she's very generous. Uh, there's a wide range of people that are at her table every night, whether it's in ethnicity or age. Uh, her mother quite often joins us, and I think her mother is about 87 now. I asked Marlene to describe this table that draws in so many people. Um, my dinner table is pretty much my uh, studio. Um, we quite clear off enough space where we can put our plate down and, and have dinner. Um, and then we clear the table of the dishes and it's right back to weaving. I have an open door policy, so um, if a person is brave enough to come out and harvest with me in the spring, then the door is open for them in uh, late September to start weaving classes every Wednesday evening and every Sunday from noon until we can't weave anymore. Hmm. Uh, like 10 o'clock at night or so. And um, I welcome uh, anybody who is interested in learning to weave. Um, maybe it'll be just a, a, a small basket and then I might never see that person again or I may have somebody who will come and learn everything that they can from me and and that gives that gives me hope that this will be a, a continued tradition for us that somebody will pick that up and have such a love of it that they have to do it every day like I do.
You are listening to Deep Roots on CKTZ Cortez Community Radio, an examination of environment and traditional knowledge and culture. Marlene's playing a large role in sustaining weaving traditions. And, according to her, a big part of that is making learning available to anyone. I thought back to my conversation with Amy in the art gallery. Partway through our interview, she let this slip in. My current contribution is I have a number of people that have asked me to share my skill with them. That's right. Amy's a teacher, too. Those bundles of bark? She was preparing them for an upcoming workshop in Vancouver. I emailed her and asked if I could come. She replied, yes. One month later, I headed to Vancouver for Amy's workshop. Inside, a group of women of all ages and from all walks of life gathered to learn from Amy. We've been weaving and learning together for a few hours now, and we've begun to form a community. Community is give and take, and so is the weaving circle. It's an honor to be at the front of a classroom and quickly, as soon as you start to establish a relationship with the people who have come to learn from you, you realize how much they have to, to, to teach as well. And it's a very social, um, social gathering, the classroom is. And I learned that very quickly up in Masset at Marlene's table because it's all about multitasking. Everybody's making something and sharing all these wonderful stories. So it's... Um, it's a, it's a double bonus for me to be able to accomplish a finished piece at the same time learning about people and, and their backgrounds. Each participant brought their own perspective. Together we wove and our fingers, clumsy at first, wove our individual stories into vessels that hold wisdom. I've learned to weave. A little bit, at least. When I asked Marlene for her advice for a beginner weaver, she said that I must learn to harvest the cedar. Really know the material and the traditions that I'm working with. I harvest my own bark, I prep my own bark, and I don't weave with anybody else's bark, just mm. so that I have a product that I know um, is from start to finish my heart that's been put into that. I don't know much about harvesting. I still don't think I can call myself a cedar weaver. But I thought that if I could go out into my forest here on Cortez with a local cedar weaver, I might understand the relationship between the trees and the weavers better. I called local elders of the Clahoose First Nations, but our schedules didn't match up. They were waiting for spring when the sap is running in the cedars. I had to go back to school in Squamish, and the deadline for this story was approaching. Just another example of the culture of today, getting things done quickly. But in researching this story, I learned that university is just one model of education. In this place that I live, there are ancient traditions of passing down knowledge, slowly, through mentorships and experience. 
This model of education works. The cedar weaving traditions have been carried on in this way for millennia. And according to Marlene, today is the time for collaboration between First Nations teachers and students from all backgrounds. Because both the cedar and the weavers are in danger of dying out. Even if it's, if it's somebody who's not Haida, I'm thankful that they're coming to my door and asking me to teach them to weave because they're interested in, in the Haida culture and in the Haida way of doing things. And that shows a, a deep respect for, for us as a, as a nation and as a people. After speaking to Marlene, I felt like I'd gotten permission to learn from her weaving traditions at least. But she impressed upon me the importance of finding mentors. The importance of relationships with them and with the cedar itself. So maybe in the spring, when I'm home again from university, I will ask Lahoose elders if I can go into the forest with them. If cedar is part of our lives, it stops us from going too fast, slows us down, and it reminds us that resource consumption too must slow. Cedar is sacred. Working with it creates mental space, and I'm certain I will make space for it in my life. Here's Amy again. So the meditation of it is part of the attraction for it, um, for me, to it for me. I have time, and I think it's, uh, I think I'm really lucky to be able to embrace an art that requires a lot of time. But there are, I'd say, most art takes time. It's just a matter of how you want to spend your day. <laughs> really? People have spent their time weaving cedar for as long as they've lived on the northwest coast. Cedar weaving ranges from the hat that sparked this story, the one I found in the museum, to the visor Amy wove for my mother. These hats are a record of tradition and change. They have the power to teach future generations and the power to ensure the survival of the cedar weavers. producer Tara Workington for this edition of Deep Roots. Technical help from Rob Selmanovic and Sean Cowell. Deep Roots senior producer is Greg Osoba. Cortez Community Radio is grateful to the Community Radio Fund of Canada, the Victoria Foundation, other donors, and the Clahoose First Nation for their support. More information about the series can be found at cortezradio.ca. <laughs>